welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. This is episode number 413. And today we're talking about some misconceptions on precision rifles and kind of custom rifles. The guys from Altera Arms join us today for this conversation. And we've connected there in Boise uh, where EXO is. Neither Steve nor I actually shoot an Altera rifle, but uh, we've seen them, we've met them. We actually know some guys who shoot their stuff and thought it would be fun just to connect with them and say, hey, what are some of the misconceptions that you guys see as a custom rifle builder about this whole world and about custom rifles or precision rifles for hunting in general? So we do get into a wide variety of topics all about rifles and bullets and reloading. Uh, Again, just to break down some misconceptions. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It is our final episode of July of 2023 which means that our giveaway for this month is wrapping up. We do have a new one kicking off for August of 2023 as well. So whether you're hearing this in July or in August, go to exomontgear.com forward slash podcast. You can find the giveaway entry form there. If you happen to be hearing this after then, you can still check that out. We may not have a giveaway going on uh, in the future, but at exomontgear.com forward slash podcast, You can find all of the podcast episodes going back many years at this point. You can browse by subject, you can search by keyword, and more. Go check that out if you are interested. Or right now, let's dive into this conversation with Drew and Todd from Altera Arms. Guys, welcome to the Hunt Pack Country podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you. Uh, Drew, I'm going to kick this off with you, man. What's an introduction and background, both what you want to share about Altera, but also maybe just personally to the listeners, get to know you a little bit. Yeah, so uh, my name is Drew. Um, I actually started Axial Precision, which is our parent company, in uh, 2015, and the concept of the company or what I wanted to originally do was uh, figure out why some rifles were more accurate than other rifles, especially like bench rest or competition rifles, and see if we could implement uh, some of the technology that made those or some of the characteristics that made those rifles um, super accurate into hunting rifles that was you know something that was more portable than you know say a bench rest gun that you have to carry around on a on a cart uh, from match to match and um so literally started on napkin table drawing with a buddy and uh kind of analyzing different components of bench rest rifles competition rifles hunting rifles and uh what i found was um, the tolerances and the machining of the different components um, kind of created a, a more accurate rifle. So what we ran into was, though, is a lot of the competition rifles or uh, bench rest rifles, the tolerances were so tight that you get any dirt and grime in there that they'd actually seize up when you try and cycle them with dirt and grime or whatever. So they weren't very field reliable. And so we came up with this design or I came up with this design that 
uh, kind of give us the best of both worlds where when cycling the receiver, cycling the bolt and the receiver um, of these bolt action rifles, it would uh, have very tight tolerances when the gun's in battery and when you need those tight tolerances for accuracy when you're about to shoot it. And when you open up the bolt to cycle it, it went into a lot sloppier, a lot looser tolerance um, area and therefore allowed to clear dirt and grime and ice. And uh, now my original plan back then was to just modify existing receivers with some of this technology, but, you know, kind of deep diving into it, there's a lot of other uh, improvements that could be made on existing receivers. So I decided, well, instead of just doing that, why don't I just make my own and fix the rest of these things? And then went further down that line and found out like, Hey, you know, we could have the best receiver on the planet, but you don't do the rest of the, the work, the chamber jobs, bedding, all this other stuff that really makes a rifle accurate, then it's not going to, it still won't be accurate. So we went down the line of making everything, um, you know, making the entire rifle. Um, my original plan was to just buy stocks and build rifles uh, with our receivers and some of our, you know, proprietary chamber job methodology but it ended up being really hard to acquire stocks so then we end up going down the whole line of designing our own stocks and figuring out how to lay up carbon fiber and and here we are today pretty much making almost everything uh kind of from scratch or all the key components very cool yeah i'm sure we'll dive deeper into some of that for sure. Todd, how about for you? What is uh, kind of some of your background and when did you come on the team with Altera and what role do you have now? Yeah. So first of all, way to dominate the air, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Todd Harney here. I'm the general manager for Drew here at Altera. Um, I've been in the hunting industry on the apparel and soft goods side uh, since about 2013 and then moved over to Idaho and got connected through some other connections to Altera and jumped at the opportunity to switch gears and get into the rifle business, which was new for me. But of course, hunting my whole life and being familiar with rifles and enjoying long range shooting, it was a pretty easy transition. And I think a, a good fit. And that was uh, two and a half years ago that I joined over here. And um, the team was much smaller than it is now. Uh, kind of felt like my earlier days at a previous company that I worked at and saw a ton of potential and, and kind of hit the ground running and um, we're constantly working on everything from staffing to uh, manufacturing quality to marketing and and taking care of customers and just trying to grow this thing, which is really fun. Sounds fun. Drew, I love that uh, 
you did like it's almost like you can't uh, keep from diving into your passion for what you're building <laughs> starting with that napkin and now to where you guys are at today oh and still i mean drew drew is in the shop every day on a machine diving into every little i mean i, I don't know how many times the words uh, the word foul gets brought up we need to let, let's let's cut some fouls get things tighter make things better constantly improving and, and it it clearly drives him and drives us yeah it's awesome and what he's talking about is like thousands of an inch and in this world you know thousands of an inch are like a mile we call them thousands you know just yeah one of the things when you know we've crossed paths with you guys and it was like yeah it'd be fun to do a podcast and i was like you know we've done different podcasts over the years on rifles and different aspects of that everything from Yes, the builds to cartridges and selection and all that. And I was thinking about for you guys, like what are some of the misconceptions that you guys run into that customers may have when they're calling you guys up or that you see online or things like that? Because you do see um, kind of the full breadth of people in the industry with some knowledge and guys who I'm sure newer. And I was just wondering like what misconceptions are out there still that you see. And one of the topics that came out of that was that, you know, you look at these rifle builders and their name may be on some things, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily making those products or those components of a build. And then Drew, as you mentioned, you guys have brought more and more and more and more in-house over the years, starting with your receivers and now stocks and all that. So I guess let's just pull on that thread a little bit more of an assembler versus like a true rifle builder that's actually doing the work and building the things that have their name on them. Um, Was that for you the very first component of that? You said was receivers. Is that the first kind of component that you brought in house and truly wanted to manufacture yeah so at least originally we've i wanted to actually have some we realized that the technology made a difference in accuracy um but it's kind of the sum of all the components all have to be good all have to be machined well all have to you know control harmonics properly in order for to guns to shoot well uh, the the part that I started off with was originally designing the receiver to have some of the technology that made it shoot better. Um, but that actually wasn't the first part we brought in house. We did some of the operations in house, and then we it was all my design. We had to get engineers and draw up everything and get you know dimensional prints that could be machined to, and then we outsourced that for a couple of years. Um, and then it got to the point where, you know, we either had uh, supply chain issues, timing issues, uh, or quality issues. And so we ended up rejecting a lot of the parts um, incoming from some suppliers. At that point, we're like, well, we got enough volume now that more out of necessity of just being able to get parts made to our exacting standards that we brought in machinery to be able to do that in-house. So yeah, it did start with the receiver and it's probably the most challenging part 
to well, make the whole action really you know yeah the whole action the bolt the receiver bolt stops all that stuff firing pin uh shroud and figuring out a manufacturing process for that and most of the machine shops that, that when i originally started this really had a tough time making this um and that's why i think the majority of people in this industry you know the the custom gun builders they don't they don't build that because of the amount of machinery and then the labor hours and kind of the know-how of being able to model something in CAD and then create prints that are actually machinable and then, you know, have the infrastructure, the machinery to be able to build uh, these parts is incredibly uh, capital intensive and, uh, you know, it takes a long time to do and long time to figure out how to, how to machine stuff, especially like hardened steel, like these things are made of. Yeah. That's, that's one of the big differences with, well, it, it's probably worthwhile to note what the difference is in our action that makes it worthwhile for us to do all this work to, to manufacture in house. Um, for one, the steel is incredibly hard. Uh, so it's high quality steel. Everything is made pre-hardened, which is very tough on consumable tooling in the machines, slow to cut, uh, requires specialized manufacturing knowledge on feeds and speeds of the tools, types of the tools. Um, so that's kind of, you know, we make our own bolts. We get them nickel boron coated. They kind of got to go across the country and back for this special coating we put on them. Um, and then also the design where the interaction between the, the bolt lugs and the inside of the receiver, and then also the barrel connection, which is Drew's kind of, um, mastermind, if you will, uh, concept, which is now patented. Uh, it's just, we, we feel like we're making something that is better than we could just go ahead and source. This might be a rabbit hole to go down, but through this process, and you know, you said that the accuracy is the sum of all the parts, what's the top, you know, two or three things that you feel like are the, you know, the most important to creating an accurate rifle? If you were to just, yeah, right off the top of your head, pick something. So there's, there's a, I, I would say 80% of the accuracy of guns, maybe more, uh, comes from uh, the machine work and the barrels. So if there's, you know, you could have the greatest barrel and then have a gunsmith that accidentally messes up the rifling on the inside while trying to do some machine work, and then that gun will probably never shoot very well. So there's a lot of uh, single causes or potential causes of failure if something's not done right. Um, if you don't have enough firing pin protrusion, you might get light primer strikes. Um, that's on like the receiver side. So, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, single points of failure that, you know, things have to be uh, to spec or uh, done properly, but if if the receiver is like a great design and the barrels machine work is you know from the actual barrel manufacturer is done right, the lands and grooves, and then the machine work from the gunsmiths done right, um, those are probably the most important things. 
Yeah, uh, alignment and concentricity of everything from your bolt to the firing pin to the the barrel connected onto the receiver to concentricity of the chamber um and then you know on down the barrel it's it's really all about alignment and repeatability of that alignment from shot to shot is there just a random thing that popped into my head have you know is there certain cartridges are known to be more inherently accurate than others is that by coincidence or is that is it true is there something in the cartridge design and how it sits inside the the rifling um that makes it more accurate so like a, a creedmoor versus a not six or something like that yeah so a not six uh when that was designed they didn't have a lot of the or one lot of people didn't care that much about accuracy and they didn't have bullets that were uh manufactured even that accurately to produce the accuracy that we're getting today. So, and modern bullets are, you know, we have these high BC bullets, um, you know, longer, pointier, that kind of thing. And then the original chambers for like the odd six were just not designed around that. So some of the new calibers, especially like, uh, a lot of the ones that Hornaday's launched, like the Creed Moors, the PRC line, they have a longer freebore and the bullets, and they're, and they're they're really designed around these longer like ELDX, ELDM bullets or VLDs, where the bullet is almost fully supported in the freebore of the chamber, so it has uh, less distortion as it enters the lands and grooves so uh they are they're they are for sure more accurate due to the design of the chamber kind of being matched to the cartridge design whereas the odd sixes the the 308s back in the day in looping looping that kind of back to the misconceptions concept we, we still get a lot of customers that, you know, they want a 300 win mag because it's a classic. It's what they know. Um, they're, they're pretty, uh, the confidence of feeling like, well, I can get ammo anywhere I go is a selling point. But if you compare a 300 win mag, look at it side by side with a 300 PRC, um, the win mags, you know, it's got the belt on the case. Um, the bullet is sitting way deeper in the case for shorter free bore and meeting Sammy spec. Um, you know, that was designed back in the day where a, a 180 sort of rounded shoulder exposed lead tip bullet was the thing. And, mm -hmm. and now with a compare that to a 300 PRC and um, designed around a 212 grain uh, super high BC efficient, um, accurately manufactured bullet. Uh, it's, it's really no comparison, especially for people that want to shoot factory ammo. Uh, the PRC is just going to whoop it nine times out of 10 in most rifles, just because of that design and, and the philosophy of building around, around the most modern streamlined bullet available. Mm. So it's, it's a, certainly, 
yeah, if you were to build 100, 300 PRCs and 100, 300 wind mags, that the, the, over the course of the, all those rifles, the average group is just, you're just going to get a better gun out of that PRC. Not that you can't have a very accurate 300 wind mag, but just you take a, a large sample size and you're just going to have a more consistent, accurate gun. Especially the further you shoot. Now we, we build people 300 wind mags still all the time. Um, if, if it's someone that wants to shoot factory ammo and stretch it out and shoot long range, the that's that's where the difference in the 300 prc really starts to show up and some of these older cartridges we've actually um especially if they're a hand loader or want to shoot our altera ammo um we've changed the geometry of the chambers even for like you know the 300 wind mag or 308 so that it has some of the characteristics of say the PRC line or the Creedmoors. And so you, that way, you know, if they want to shoot factory ammo, uh, it'll still go bang or still usually shoot pretty stinking well. But if, uh, but it, you know, is designed around bullets or cartridge or ammo where the bullets pushed out further in the actual case and has more of the geometry of the newer, more modern cartridges. This isn't a misconception, but just looking over everything from you guys, it made me think of, you know, obviously it's pretty popular these days to, you know, there's even guys building quote unquote rifles at home, right? With things like prefits and and getting in action and screwing on a prefit and getting their own stock or chassis or what have you, and just assembling all these components together. And there can be some good builds out of that. But I guess one question I have is I, I do see a lot of like ways that you guys are doing things differently with, as we've talked about the action and the receiver, uh, what was mentioned, but not fully discussed was the barrel and how that um, seats with the receiver. And so I guess with all of the patented technology that you guys have, in different ways, do you guys, are you in the component game at all? Meaning can someone buy just one of your actions and do either a pre-fit or have some other gunsmith chamber up a barrel for your action or because of all these patented technology and changes, do you pretty much need to stick with like Altera components only working together um, kind of as a complete rifle? So we, we do sell a component action. We sell our stocks as a component, which is which are pretty popular. Uh, our component action undergoes the exact same manufacturing process as our, and it's called our C2. Our in-house um, only rifle action is the convergence. The only difference between those two is the barrel connection. So. Um, the barrel connection on our convergence that we build our own rifles with only uh, uses the patent where there's the seating rings at the front and back, sort of like a mortise and tenon of the barrel connection threads. The C2 does not have that. So anybody can buy a C2. They can go to carbon six and get a prefit for it, have a gunsmith uh, spin up a barrel for it. And so you're getting the, the patent of our, our bolt lug design and integration with the receiver, but not the barrel connection, which we reserve for ourselves. Okay. 
Got it. So one of the benefits of the action design and from what I understand, like the bolt and the raceways and how some of the changes have existed there is, as you've talked about, to like improve feeding and make sure that this action is going to just cycle without fail kind of under all conditions, which is obviously important to hunters. I'm curious though, like to expand on one, feel free to expand on the changes that you have made to help with that. But two, how much of a a component in my mind that comes into play here is what is feeding your action, meaning what type of magazine or uh, internal or detachable magazine is helping to feed the action? Like how much of that comes into play with cycling? And is there a certain recommended setup that if a guy gets a C2 action, for example, um, is that recommended only for a certain type of um, feeding platform or is there some variety there? So the, the patent has to do with cycling the bolt. And that's what you find is some of these uh, aftermarket actions, the bolt to receiver clearance is incredibly tight. And if you get any like moon dust in there, they often get sticky or the, the bolt will actually seize up inside the receiver. Or if you get water in there and it climb a mountain and it freezes, and then you kind of just, the whole thing's frozen together. So what we wanted to do is fix that. The actual picking up of rounds and cycling of rounds, that's all has to be tweaked either, you know, on our rifles, we, we just kind of tweak with the internal box mag or the detachable box mag uh, to get them to pick up rounds smoothly. And, you know, that's, that's like a typical gunsmith kind of activity as they put together a gun. Um, but yeah, they, you know, we we uh, inlet our stocks for all different types, whether it be the, you know, the hinge floor plate, you know, flat bottom style internal box mag. They're common on most hunting rifles or the, you know, the, <clears throat> um, the AI style, Accuracy International style mags, or uh, they have some more sleek, uh, Hawkins, Hunter DBM, Hunter DBMs. Yeah, all all the bottom metal and internal um, box mag, etc. Hardware that we're using is the same high end stuff that other high end builders are using. But yeah, like Drew says, it's that that no fail cycling is really the bolt uh, interfacing inside the receiver. Uh, where the bolt lugs come into contact with the receiver only as the bolt fully closes. And as soon as you lift it, uh, the the way it's cut like an ellipse instead of a perfect circle like other ones, um, as soon as you open up that bolt, it's self-cleaning, self-clearing to uh, avoid getting frozen up like, like he explained in those hunting type situations. Do you guys use a two log or three log bolt? Two, two. Okay. Was that very intentional? Was that just because of the design that that's what made the most sense? Or what, I guess, what is your opinion on that? Because it, you know, some guys say it doesn't matter. Some guys are, you know, kind of in big fans of being in one camp or the other with in terms of lugs and obviously related to that um, bolt lift. So one of the things we wanted to do with this is one that the, the technology works with is any amount of lugs. 
Um, and that's actually what it, the way it's written up in our patents. Um, but, uh, you know, usually three lugs or 60 or 70 degree throw. Um, sometimes there's two lugs to do that. But having a 90 degree throw, it doesn't require as much force uh, lifting on the bolt to cock the firing pin and kind of release the bolt so you can grab the next round. So what we wanted to do is make sure that one, the guns shoot accurately, but you could actually get on target better and stay on target better for follow-up shots. So if you have to lift with more force on say a 60 or 70 degree throw um, of the bolt, you're, you're more apt to pull off target more than you are with like a 90 degree throw bolt like ours, where you can just use one finger. And so therefore you take a shot and you want to get back on that animal, whatever it is to be able to see or target to see where you actually impacted. You're, you're more likely to do that. And going along those lines, we, we also designed the stock and our muzzle brakes to be able to stay on target better just for those reasons. Yeah. And on, on the bolt lug thing, our design would not possibly even work with anything but two lugs. It's if we we're in front of a whiteboard, it would be so much easier to show. But if you picture an oval or an ellipse, which is the shape of the inside of our receiver. And as you bring the bolt down, and the bolt lugs turn inside of there and at their final resting place in battery, the outside of the bolt lugs are making perfect contact inside. So that's how we get this consistent concentricity. Every time you close the bolt, it turns, um, drops into the narrow side of the oval, if you will. And so there's only two points of contact uh, at the closest area of an oval. So that's by design, the only way that this technology works for us. You mentioned stocks a couple of times. I'd just love to hear more about your stocks and kind of what what goes into the design. What were the goals of the design? Um, you mentioned earlier things like staying on target. So, you know, what what is in the stock geometry that helps with recoil and just kind of repeatability uh, and what other aspects of the stock did you work into design for what intent so the the original the, the reason i got into the stock manufacturing game was not necessarily for these reasons but because it took such a long time lead times for stocks to build a completed rifle were six eight months which really hasn't dropped off a whole lot in the industry but i thought to myself well we got all the machining capability. I'm pretty sure I could design something that had a lot of these features uh, that force people to shoot better uh, and get into full, you know, make molds from design to final product in less time than it would take me to order one. So that's kind of the evolution of where that came from. But as far as functionality, um, it's got a negative comb, which is the part your cheek sits on. And when the gun recoils, the, um, the, the actual comb of the stock or the part your cheek's sitting on doesn't come back and smack you in the face. So that's one of the aspects, right? 
um, the the comb is actually at or above center line of recoil. And what that does is, and as far as I know, I think we're the only stock company that does that. Um, if, if the stock uh, is below the center line of recoil, so basically imaginary bore or imaginary line down the bore of the barrel, that's where the recoil is going to be. If the stock is below that point, which as far as I know, every stock in the market is, it creates a fulcrum point. So the whole gun wants to pivot up over that. And you've probably seen this, like go to the range and someone shoots the gun and the gun comes flying up uh, and then they bouncing around on the bench or on the ground. Um, so we actually made it so that the center line of recoil goes into your shoulder rather than over a fulcrum and try and climb. And then another feature we made is, you know, a lot of these stocks, people say they like a palm swell, but if you look at most palm swells, they sit so far out to the side away from the trigger that when you start squeezing on the trigger and kind of packing on the pounds of that trigger, it's going to cause you to pull the gun off axis, you know, left and right. Um, so we actually sunk the entire, it feels like a palm swell, they're super comfortable, but we actually sunk the entire area where your uh, palm goes almost directly in line with the trigger. So that way when you're packing on the pounds is pulling more straight in line with the trigger and you're less apt to pull off target. Um, yeah, so those are the the two uh, main characteristics of that stock design. And also, you know, you know, a lot of the stocks on the market are like kind of caliber specific. You can only shoot above this caliber, otherwise they might crack. So we've actually kind of modified our manufacturing process so we can add more carbon in certain areas. So like right now we just make all of our stocks. So we have 12 layers of carbon in the key area around the receiver. So it basically, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do a stock torture test here, make a video of it shortly. But you know, we we ran over one of them with Todd's truck and it held the weight of Todd's truck, or at least uh one wheel of Todd's truck. <laughs> um yeah, uh leaning leaning up on a on the curb outside drove a wheel right up on it and that was an inletted stock too so not even not even full strength that's on the rifle type of strength the other thing is uh the the aesthetics and the uh carbon fiber quality is a pretty big thing when somebody's investing in a rifle of this caliber and so having our our own full control actually most of the stocks were made right here in this shop until last year um our partner jay is that is making them over in caldwell at his own shop at home but it's you know still our stock our manufacturing and there's so much room for error in the carbon layup the the way the resin infuses infuses little dimples and air pockets and straightness straightness of the fibers uh, that having having full control of that and being able to just tell our own guy hey this is the standard um for aesthetics and and build quality is huge rather than waiting 
eight months for a batch of stocks to come in outsourced and be, you know, lackluster about the way they look. On in terms of, I think you made some changes just, I think recently to stocks, right? So I guess my question is, if a guy was familiar with your stocks two years ago, what are the differences or what's new? Because I think there was an update for 2023, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so we we added a second stock design this year, which is our original is the Carbon Hunter, the new one's the Carbon Hunter 2. Uh, both both stocks are fully available. So the one of the main things is we started getting a lot more demand for detachable box mag bottom metal. In our original stock, the depth below the action was just a hair on the deep side to where when you put a DBM up into it, um, there wasn't a lot of positive contact for on the bolt face to the back of the round. And, and so it was sketchy on um, being able to positively pick up a round every time. So on the Carbon Hunter 2, that's the only stock we're doing for DBMs. Uh, and, and that's a, a better design thinned it up. Now the, the bolt picks up, you know, the top half of the back of the round instead of the top quarter or third, uh, personal preference things too. you know, our, our carbon hunter original has textured grip on the palm and up on the forend. The new version does not. Some people like it. Some don't same with the Monte Carlo style cheek piece on the sides. So, um, and, and then the big thing that people have really liked on the new stock is that flush integrated pick rail up on the fore end, which is just a, a more modern design. Definitely not specific to us. It's sort of the the new design on the fore end of a lot of stocks out there. Um, and now we're in the process of adding that to the original Carbon Hunter. So just two different options for people to choose from now. Jumping back to the misconceptions, uh, one of them that you guys said you see quite a bit is just price. Like you guys build high-end precision rifles that clearly are uh, far from cheap. And there's this misconception of price is just you guys with you and many other builders. I'm not saying this of you specifically, but just like, you know, you just must be making banks selling these rifles for thousands of dollars when you can get a rifle off the shelf for a few hundred dollars, right? So talk, I guess, a bit about what is involved, time, component, investment, materials that makes the price what it is. And that if people think, you know, you're just making this crazy, crazy profit margin on every single item, why that may not be true. Yeah, it's... <laughs> Even at the price point that we're at, our our margins are are slim. One because it's very capital intensive, having all the machinery here. The machinery has to stay busy, um, which it it does. But the design aspect, you got to get a return on all that too. You know, I had three years of basically full time work with engineers, machine shops. Uh, trying to prove out the process and make sure that we can uh, accurately and reliably consistently make parts to the tolerances that we needed to to get this accuracy. So that's a big part of it. The other thing is there's a lot of ways of uh, cutting corners 
when it comes to manufacturing, for instance, um, if you want to buy a receiver that has uh, a pinned on recoil lug, so like the, the receiver is one inch, 350 thou. And um, if you have a pinned on recoil lug, you can start off with a bar of material that's just slightly over that one inch 350 and then turn that down and then do all the mill work. If you want to have an integrated uh, pick rail or integrated recoil lug, you got to start off with a two inch piece of round bar. So our, our material starts off just for the receiver body alone is eight pounds. By the time we're done with it, it's less than a pound. So and everything is seven plus pounds of that is pure waste. It, well, we recycle it, but pennies <laughs> on the dollar. Right. Um, you know, the, yeah. And that's, that's just the manufacturing side of it. The other side is just for a receiver to source a, a four sixteen two inch round bar that's nine and a quarter inches long for a long action receiver, and then have it go from the steel supplier to a heat treat place, uh, bring it in here, gun drill, wire EDM, the raceway, all the different work that has to happen to them um, between shipping, all you know, the costs add up like crazy by the time we have. A finished receiver and that's just one part of the whole rifle yeah we have more money and i heard the this stat from uh what i believe to be a pretty reliable source we have more money into our raw material of the receiver than remington did uh when they were producing the remington 700 in the completed product um and that's before any of the major machine work has been done to it. Wow. So it, it definitely adds up and um, it's again, you know, the, the raw material being one thing, but uh, we have about, it depends on what you choose to do or what all we do to these rifles. You know, sometimes we just build a gun. Uh, sometimes we build a gun, put an optic on it and then Sometimes we build a gun, put an optic on it, and go validate the ballistics data of that gun out to a thousand yards. And that there's a lot of labor in that. So like just the the base rifle, we have 15 to 18 hours in each one of them of labor, not including machine time. Yeah, I, I think I can comfortably speak for Drew by saying that this his brand exists because he wants to make what he feels like is the best rifle that can be made, not because he sees it as a get rich scheme. Yeah, you don't get in the gun industry to to get rich. <laughs> Especially when the federal government takes 11% off of the top of the revenue, no matter what you make in profit. In oh, jeez. Yeah. Is that an excise tax? I know that there's some builders who stay small on purpose because if you build less than a certain amount of rifles, you don't face that additional tax. Is that correct? Yeah. If you, if you produce 49 or less a year, you don't have to pay excise tax. And as soon as you hit 50, you owe 11% of the revenue of all 50 plus 
all other guns above 50 that you make. So Oof. it's, and that's off of revenue. So it, it it's definitely, uh, you know, there, there's that baked into all of it. Right. Yeah, man. But still far and above uh, the largest cost is just the, the added labor and, we don't just build the guns and then kick them out the door. They're, uh, you know, if, if they don't shoot to our standards, we'll tear the whole thing apart, diagnose it. And, you know, whether it be like rebarrel it and start over from scratch and start repainting the whole thing. And um, we'll do that before it ever leaves here. And, you know, that happens on occasion. Yeah. No, no matter how, how consistently, we build the rifles. Um, we we feel like through experience, we still have to go break in the barrel and shoot every one of them just to make sure that it's that we're going to provide what the customer is expecting. Uh, as I said, that leads back to my original question there of like, what is that? You would immediately defaulted to rebarreling it. Is that the most common thing that happens if you're gonna gonna get a gun that doesn't shoot? No, that we usually look through everything and test everything before we get down to that because that's the most expensive part to to redo you have a huge amount of labor into that we have a proprietary chambering process that's you know even using cnc mach machinery it's still twice the time that someone else can do it or you know standard gunsmithing chambering process yeah, so we've got a we've got a flow sheet for for the guys in the shop when one isn't performing to standard and it typically starts with evaluating the optic, the optic mounts, optic mounting, um torques on different things, uh I mean loose muzzle brake. There's there's so many little things that typically are an easy fix. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's, it, and you go through everything and it turns out it's a bad barrel, spin up a new barrel and, and it goes out and shoots. But to, to your answer or to your question, Steve, uh, I would say most of the time it's optics mounting. And we see that a lot when customers try and mount their own optics. What's the mistakes uh, they're making? Clamping rings completely tight on one side and loose on the other. And, you know, a few thousandths of an inch of scope movement is like a minute of angle um, projected out at a hundred yards. So if, if that scope moves at all or has any like, you know, lateral flex or anything like that, you're going to see that. Um, yeah. Torques torques being inconsistent on all four screws on each optic mount, uh, torques into the receiver being off, using somehow too long of a screw that bottoms out in the bottom of the, the receiver mounting hole before it reaches torque. So you're torquing in the bottom of the hole and not on the, uh, the mount itself. There's all kinds of different things. I'm guessing I'm racking my brain on on my personal setup, but <laughs> so I've got I've got a little. What do I have, Mark? What's that torque wrench we have? 
little oh it's like a that's a wheeler i think wheeler torque wrench yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. i mean you, you put the you drop the scope in there and just torque everything down to 18 foot pounds are you good or can you screw that up um so one of the things we found is uh not all uh scope mounts are made equal and we're now um i just got an email 10 minutes ago from my one of my engineers and cad guys that we're we're designing our own just because we found that uh you know we might go through two sets of certain brand of scope rings that don't have enough clamping force or the bore where the scope goes is not it's not straight so it's not actually clamping very much of that scope it's got very little contact so we're actually going down the road of designing and we're going to build our own rings just so we can control that and you know you don't have to go mount up some rings put the scope in there shoot it find out the gun doesn't shoot come back inspect the rings swap out rings go back to the range shoot it make sure everything holds tight yeah it's uh it's 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 fairly frustrating to build what we feel is a very very accurate precision rifle and then be putting subpar mounts on it and it sort of like if, if everything isn't strong and perfect and precision then that one cheapest thing on the rifle is gonna not do the project justice and and we're running into that more more and more enough to the point where it's like let's just make altera rings for our rifles also so you're you're not talking like someone went to walmart and bought rings you're talking obviously quality rings from companies out there that exist that are you're still seeing these issues well-known good you know usually good rings but when when you're doing more volume like us you know the, the average guy can go pick a setup and chances are they're going to be sufficient and work well and the majority mm -hmm. of them do for us but with our volume it just exposes you know yeah, you get one in a hundred one in a thousand whatever yeah yeah shows up. And it, yeah, yeah and it's, it's actually a, quite a bit more than that and then you're talking labor to redo stuff lapping time remounting back to the range more ammunition more rounds uh, it, it all adds up gotcha when you guys were talking about testing and verifying rifles and i know that you have an accuracy guarantee and feel free to talk about that but what do you have your own facility that you're doing all this testing on or what are the conditions in which you're doing this initial verification and testing so it's not our own facility we are a member at a private range that's about a 10 minute drive away and it may as well be our own facility because during the week there's rarely anybody else there so we have a, a full-time shooter and ammo guy brandon who's super talented um, built to handle daily recoil uh <laughs> high attention good shooter um and so he's he's out there every day with the rifles it's an outdoor 100 yard range with uh a concrete covered slab and um we you know big berms around the sides there's definitely wind and breeze to contend with most days uh mirage on the target it's like depending on the time of year it's one problem or another uh, but but we're testing them laying down prone with a long range only rear wedge bag 
and a bipod in the front, just like any other human would go shoot their rifle. And then what is the guarantee that you guys are looking to shoot? Uh, so sub sub half inch, three shot groups, hundred yards, premium ammo. And, and whether that's a good factory ammo, there's, there's a lot of inconsistency in factory ammo and, uh, a lot of, you know, that goes back to the PRC stuff. Uh, the more modern cartridges, the factory ammo just shoots better. But that's with good factory ammo or our own internal Altera ammo. So I see like for, so your own Altera ammo, I guess there's obviously certain cartridges. Like I shoot seven psalm a lot and we've talked about that. And I think I've seen it as an option that you guys offer. So for that, it's not something where there is factory ammo. You guys have your own load essentially to pick on seven Psalm, for example, of, Hey, we chamber rifles in this cartridge. There is no great factory ammo offering. So you've developed essentially the Altera, um, I don't want to say factory ammunition, but it's really your own ammunition to shoot. Yeah, exactly. And the, the last seven Psalm guy, he wanted to shoot copper bullets. And so we developed an Altera load using a, a hammer 155 copper bullet. Um, the, the one previous to that was just a factory ammo type of customer. And the only ammo we could find factory ammo was a couple of crusty old boxes of the yellow and green Remington stuff. Corelock. Yeah. Yeah. With Corelock yeah. bullets. And it was like, well, let's buy some of that. And it's, it's all we can find and went out and was able to shoot sub half inch groups with it. So kind of, yeah, some, some of the calibers, I'm sure you see it too, are just very difficult to find components for, let alone good factory ammo, that being one of them. What? Like I'm thinking about the, so you, you get like a, well, the first gun I got was a Weatherby backcountry and then talk to people and they're like uh Cahill for example Mark you're just like well I'll send you like a bunch of different ammo and just keep shooting till you find one that works is that are you just playing with coincidence there and luck like just there's enough things wrong that you're just hoping one of these things works are, are you, is your gun going to shoot just much more consistently with all sorts of different ammo right it's not going to be as sensitive to charge weight and seating depth and bullet design Definitely. Yeah. The, the, all the precision that goes into the rifle, um, reduces the likelihood that one ammo is going to shoot significantly better than another. Now we do see instances where, and, and pretty often where one lot of a factory ammo shoots noticeably different than the, than another lot number still, you know, qualifying for for our accuracy needs and what we're shooting for but even in you know we got we got two different lots of seven prc ammo right now and in most rifles one of the lots is shooting like one whole groups whereas the next lot number is shooting you know just under half inch fairly consistently and for us that's significant yeah i'm sure you guys are in touch with how uh, strapped the industry is for 
ammunition and and powder and you try and find reloading supplies at you know your local cabels or sportsmen's or whatnot and it's just non-existent um, even the big players in ammunition are having trouble sourcing the same powder especially over and over again so they actually have to blend it and from lot to lot you might find big velocity differences so within the same lot they're usually very consistent as far as velocity goes but as soon as you switch the next lot you know we've seen 100 foot per second velocity spread just because they need to you know they can't quit producing ammunition because they can't get whatever powder so they'll blend powders to get there but so that's you you got lot a and lot b and lot a shoots better than b you pull the literally you just pull a bullet apart on on the lot B ammo and say like, why the hell is this shooting different? And then is it coming down to the powder? Typically, yes. And and we don't, we don't really pull them apart to investigate because every round we shoot, we have a mag or a, um, uh, a chronograph out there. And so we, if we can see there's a hundred foot per second difference from this lot to the next one, well, you know that that's having an impact on your barrel harmonics and one rifle will just like one harmonic better than the other and, and vice versa. But where you really see that is let's say you got half a box, a lot a and half a box, a lot B in your pockets and you, you know, you're going to go out and try and take some long shots. You know, you're going to, you're going to see a, a, a big difference at distance. If you have a hundred foot per second velocity spread. So you, you almost have to dial in your your factory ammo. If, if you're going to shoot factory ammo, you, you almost have to just make sure you got all of one lot there or verify that your second lot has the same velocity or very close to. Uh, I know that's one of the topics here. Mark, you want to jump into that of long-range shooting and ethics? Yeah, I was just kind of curious to get your guys' take. Again, going back to the misconceptions that you guys see and I think as important as as much as there is a focus on precision and the capabilities of these rifles and cartridges and bullets for that matter, like at the end of the day, I feel like these systems are far more capable beyond where hunters, quote unquote, should be shooting animals. And I'm not defining what someone's distance should be, but I just think if you take someone with a custom rifle myself included it's more capable than i am and so i was just curious from your take like where ethics and all that really comes into play because you guys are building rifles and providing capabilities that exceeds the shooter or just kind of how you guys think about that topic yeah so i completely agree with you um most in almost every instance, these rifles outperform the shooter. And when it comes to like long range shooting, the, the most important part is having tons of trigger time and really understanding your gun and more importantly, understanding how to read wind. That is the most challenging part. Like Todd was talking about earlier, we have Brandon that does this full time. I, I don't even know how many hundreds of rounds he shoots a week. But, you know, he might qualify five or six guns a week at 500 and a grand. And 
most of the time he doesn't have first round impacts because he didn't pick up the wind properly. And that, and that is a, a really important factor. And even, even Brandon said, you know, I probably wouldn't shoot anything, you know, with deer and elk or whatever past six, 600, maybe 700. If, if he's got really good feel for what the wind's doing or if there is no wind at all, but on that same token, if you make a bad shot at 400, let's say, but let's say you hit some brush or something like that, or the bullet hit some brush or you didn't get a good trigger squeeze. It's really nice to have the capability of not just taking a hail Mary at a grand. If you need to finish that animal off, like actually having the capability, um, to just, you know, it's like you practice did this a lot in archery too. You, there's no reason to shoot at 10 yards when you could do all your practice at a hundred yards, because then it just makes you that better at shorter ranges. It's funny. You said that I just literally yesterday went out and shot like my, you know, I've only been shooting nice rifles for four years now. Um, but just through my limited shooting, it just seems like the wheels fall off past 600 yards. Like kind of go up in the mountains and shoot steel and be pretty consistent at 500. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, after 600, things just really open up and it's all wind. But then yesterday I went out and shot uh, out at 800, 900 yards just for that very reason, because I hadn't shot that gun past six just to like, well, if I, if I do need a follow-up shot on something, it'd be nice to know that things are on. And I did pretty good out of 720 and then got to 880 and literally just the, it was the, where I set the steel target. It was across the canyon, like a big horseshoe canyon, and the wind was blowing, you know, two different directions where I was laying and where the target was, was literally 180 degree different wind. And it was, it was just almost impossible to read. Yeah. There's, there's so many, I mean, on shots like that, where your rifle is the most consistent variable in the entire equation. And you've got human variable, environmental variable, ballistics, variables, uh, ammo temp variables. Yeah. Yeah. All the way down to, um say say it's a cold day was your ammo your round you're about to shoot in your pocket staying warm closer to the temperature that your ballistics are set up for or was it in your gun freezing and never it, heard of that before ammo temp oh yeah yeah and there's and and that's what's so cool about these modern ballistics programs too uh so we we set customers up with a full rifle custom rifle profile in the Hornady Ford off app when they get our ballistics package. And it pretty much gives them a baseline for what their rifle does as we, or our professional guy shot it and found and set up for them. And there's a section in there where you can enter your velocity at different temperatures. And then when you put in the temperature for the shot, you're about to take, it's going to automatically calculate what your adjusted uh, velocity should be. So you're saying if you got your bullets in your pocket and they're kind of body temperature, it's going to shoot different than if they were, you know, strapped to the backpack and at, at air temperature. Yeah. If, if there's a large discrepancy between the outside between air the and right. Yeah. It's 10 and, degrees and it, outside and 70 degrees in your pocket. 
same thing if if people are doing if people are shooting at the range or or shooting long range and they've got their ammo laying out baking in the sun versus in the shade uh, that's going to cause a variable let's say you've fired a number of shots and your barrel's hot your chamber's hot and you close around in your chamber and you're sitting there waiting 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 watching your conditions watching your wind you're cooking that round in your in your hot chamber and if somebody waits too long to fire that shot there's another velocity variable it's like the more i learn the the shorter my effective range becomes (laughs) (laughs) it all boils down to practice though the more conditions you practice in the more you start to understand and pick up on these little things and then by the time you go hunt um, the closer to automatic you can be, the better off you are. And, and that's different for everybody. And there's also ways around this, especially if you're a hand loader. Um, so you can work on like your powder charge and um, adjusting your powder charge to where um, your your ideal powder charge you know, if you go up or down two tenths of a grain in powder, it doesn't change velocity very much. Yeah. So that way, you know, the, the it, it kind of simulates going up or down in temperature. So more powder kind of simulates higher temperature and less powder simulates lower temperature. So if you have a powder charge node that is not very, um, it doesn't affect accuracy as much, you know, looking at what your velocity did on either side of that, that can make it more stable. So less apt to um, yeah, see different. Yeah. I think I was listening to the uh, Mark was one of those Hornady podcasts and they were talking just even about having like full case capacity, right? Like if you have a uh, kind of a light load in there where you can shake it and hear the powder rattling around, if you're, even if you're aiming uphill or downhill, it means the powders like slid to the front or slid to the, slid to the back and you're going to get variances there. Yeah. The, the flame front from the primer uh, changes the burn rate. So it's always best. And you know, this is also one of the things that we ran into as a challenge coming up with our, um, Altera ammo is one with powder shortages. We we have to basically choose powders that will give us the velocity and consistency we need, but we have to find powders where we get that velocity and consistency with a certain bullet where we're at, you know, high, high 90s uh, percentage of case capacity. So that way mm-hmm. it has less variation of that. There's such a rabbit hole you can go down on all this stuff it's crazy <laughs> yeah. all, all to fill a tag yeah. <laughs> right yeah. well so it's can... funny too is because 90 percent of the time we, we all build these super nice rifles and whatnot and get out in the field and like the last 10 animals i've killed of basically you know 100 yards 150 yards 220 yards like um it's pretty rare actually i have to stretch something out yeah yeah Random question, guys. I was looking at a page on your website where it has uh, like kind of in stock rifles or built rifles kind of ready to go. There's a test target with each of them. The one I happen to be looking at for this rifle, there's one test target with two separate three shot groups. 
next to one of the three shot groups it says the first three next to the other three shot group it says the second three they're clearly you know they're separate groups at different points of aim i'm just curious and maybe you don't know offhand is this literally the first three shots down the barrel and the second three shots down the barrel is that what we mean by like first and second three on this particular test target or is that maybe not the case yeah good question definitely not so our we we have a break-in procedure where we're typically shooting rounds just into the bank shoot one clean shoot one clean shoot one clean and and there's sort of a seven to nine ten eleven uh round process where where we're really just breaking in the throat uh getting the scope zeroed and and it's not until about nine ten eleven rounds plus that we start shooting actual groups to to qualify or signify the accuracy of the rifle and that's that's a kind of a feel thing for brandon or whoever's out there shooting the rifles on what's a balance between feeling like we've we've got the throat broken in the barrels you know more much more broken in than brand new uh and and we'll definitely not just go fire three first rounds out of the gun if it qualifies um then call it good we put a little more work into it than that okay i assume that was the case but i just wanted to make sure yeah but what actually what i was showing on those two targets is the first actual three shot group compared to the next three shot group and if you overlay those two targets on top of each other it's really and based on the location and the aiming point it's it's really six rounds all under a half inch you come and see um bullet velocities pick up as you get you know 50 rounds 100 rounds down the barrel or is that more of a misconception that that happens it's barrel to barrel um we've seen you know we've done some testing where uh you might shoot 100 rounds 150 rounds and it might only pick up like 20 feet per second. But then we've seen other barrels where it might pick up 100, 120 after like 50, 80 rounds, something like that. Yeah, or or you, you get 80 rounds in and it, it speeds up and plateaus and then you get to 120 rounds and it peaks up again and then kind of plateaus for good uh yeah they're, they're... so it's it, it is happening just to what extent yeah is that just simply the the grooves and the rifling kind of just i'm assuming there's going to be some type of machining marks in there right is that just the bullet kind of smoothing those out so it's it's slipping down the barrel with less resistance it actually i think it's the opposite so pressure kind of dictates velocity and okay. so you get fire cracking which is like uh, micro fractures in the outer surface of the lands and grooves of the barrel. And so, um, and, and then this is theory and a lot of people will back up this theory and, um, but it, it essentially creates more friction, which then allows, you know, creates more pressure. So therefore more velocity. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Guys, we could talk all day. I'm sure. I don't want to. I don't want to take your whole day though. To wrap up, what's um, 
What do you guys see? Like what's common right now? What's a trend? What are guys after? They're calling and asking questions about building the rifle. I'm just curious, like what what are guys wanting cartridge wise? What are they wanting in their rifle and components? Uh, what comes to mind? Seven PRC. Yeah. <laughs> the hype is real. Barrel and light. Yeah. Short, shorter on the barrels. And, and a lot of customers want barrels that are even shorter than, than we make. Uh, cause for, for us, it's all about the performance of our rifles and, uh, we're, we're sampling more of, of some of the shorter stuff, you know, 18, 20 inches in the, in the bigger Magnum long action calibers. Uh, we honestly don't like to go below 22 inches on those just for performance sake. Um, but yeah, man, seven PRCs and shorter and lighter is, is kind of what, what people are after right now. We've got so many of those seven PRCs in the queue to build and, waiting on barrels for them. And, and meanwhile, we can kind of at will build seven, six, five PRCs, which is what you see for sale on our website versus a year ago, we couldn't keep a six, five PRC in stock. So it's, it's kind of funny how the, the demand and the trend and the what's new thing plays such a role in, in what we're seeing and doing. What are you guys personally shooting these days? I shoot a 300 Sherman short, which a lot of people won't really recognize or know what that is, but it's a, it's a wildcat round, um, that you can get, uh, ADG brass for, and it's, it's a fairly well-supported wildcat. Honestly, I like the ballistics on it. Um, I like the light recoil and the performance I get with a heavy 208 grain bullet and a short action. And we had a barrel here already chambered for one. So I built myself a rifle with it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. When I get a short barrel, 300 PRC, um, shorter barrel than, so my guns are always the test guns of the shop. And, um, the last gun that I built for myself got sold, um, just, you know, do initial testing kind of meets our guarantee, like the ballistics. And then someone sees it on some post and, uh, next thing you know, I'm got to find a new gun for myself, but current one that hasn't sold to anybody or <laughs> is a, another short barreled 20 inch 300 PRC. Yeah. So Drew's Drew's rifle is the, uh, first convergence long action, uh, um, action that he made. So it's got quadruple zeros for the serial number, which is fairly special. And it seems to keep getting rebuilt into something different. And I think Drew shoots less than anybody here anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also less now. Well, to wrap up, just let guys uh, know where to find you you know, where to, how to reach out if they have questions, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, AlteraArms.com. That's two L's, two R's, two A's is our website. We're on Instagram at Altera Arms. Um, if we're not shadow banned, you might be able to find us, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, and we are trying to do more with our YouTube channel now too, making a couple 
more in-depth videos a month in-house here. And, and so we've we've got some recent stuff on YouTube that dives a little deeper into some of the things we touched on in this conversation. Well, that is a wrap on this one, guys. Thank you as always for tuning in. Check out the links in the show description if you want to get in contact with the guys from Altera Arms or check out more of what they are up to. If you are enjoying the show, it would help us tremendously if you just share it with a friend or leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using where you can do so. And if you have anything for us and you want to contact us, whether that's a question, a comment, or a suggestion, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com or look for the link in the show description that says leave us a message and you can ask us a question via audio using whatever device you're on right now. It'd be great to hear from you. And if you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.